The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. This is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. As most of you are probably already aware, it is Women's History Month. We're talking about a lot of hot topics around women in the intelligence community and the defense industry and celebrating the roles that women play in national security this month. And in that vein, we're very excited to have Katie Nockin Hopkins here joining us today. She has a variety of roles. I've met her working in different capacities across um, the federal space and the military community. Currently, she is with Altana AI on their federal team. She also has leadership roles in the Amazing Women of the IC and with the Command Purpose Foundation. And I wanted her to join us just to talk a little bit about her roles, how she got into national security in that space. And then also we're kind of talking about an event that's been going on all this week, the Women in National Security Media Festival. So Clearance Jobs was a partner in that and we've been trying to promote those events. For those of you who are looking to get into the national security space, I always say I can't overemphasize the importance of networking, attending events, the capacity for people to attend virtual events now has really made it great and made it easy. So definitely follow the Women in National Security Media Festival. I'm sure there'll be on-demand content and other things. We will share the coverage that we can. So on that note, I want to turn it over to Katie. So talk to me a little about your path into national security. What got you interested in the career field and maybe what advice you'd give to somebody else who's listening to this saying, hey, You know, I'm listening to Federal News Radio now. I'm really interested in pursuing a national security career. How do I even get started? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lindy, first, I just want to say thank you so much for hosting me. This is so special. As you know, I'm involved in the Iron Butterfly podcast, which interviews and tells stories of women in the intelligence community. And I'm always on the other side of it. So it's really fun to just kind of be here with you and and share a little bit of my own story and my experience. So I think to answer your first question, you know, what kind of got me interested in national security? My path into this community was kind of unexpected. I actually went to study at Columbia University and went to study neuroscience. I didn't even make it a week on campus when I was walking with a friend of mine. And I was telling her about how, you know, my, my dreams to study neuroscience and my life plans. And I asked her what she was studying. And she said, oh, I'm studying political science. And I remember looking at her and saying, what is that? She said, well, you know, it's kind of the study of government. I think from that moment on, I was kind of intrigued. And there was a presidential election my freshman year, and the campus atmosphere was just totally electric. And I actually just kind of started to pay attention to some of these things and listen to these ideas and and kind of develop my own worldview. And, And from that moment on, I was just kind of hooked. So I really just knew that I wanted to pursue a career that really had this kind of global mission impact that would give me the opportunity to just kind of leave a positive impact in the world. And so I think for those who are thinking about getting into this community, one of the things I wish I had known is, you know, there are a lot of, I think, prescribed paths that are a little narrow for folks who are interested in getting into this community. You know, you kind of talk to these people 
and mentors who say, you know, you have to do this and then you have to do this and then you have to do this. And I think what I would say to my former self and what I would say to anyone who is kind of interested in this path is when you talk to people who prescribe a path for you, it's really grounded in their own kind of bias and experience. And a lot of times these prescribed paths and these shoulds, like you should do this and then this, those are really kind of created by the majority for the majority, right? And not for the minority. And I think my opportunities really came when I was able to embrace my own difference and what made me unique and not what made me the same because I wasn't the same. I love that. I had a similar experience. I started working for the army and got into government that way. And I found my strategic advantage was always the diversity of thought that I brought to the table. You know, at least in, in this community and, you know, in the te- intelligence community and national security community, that embracing difference, that is mission essential, right? Like that's not just a nice to have or like you're a check the box thing, right? Because the stakes are really high in this work. And unless you were bringing together coal coalitions of people who really see the world differently, you're frankly not doing your job. And the stakes are incredibly high. Uh, So I think, at least in this community, I found that it embraces diversity, I think, in a really unique way, because it really is essential to the mission that we're serving. And so obviously the name of our program on Federal News Radio is Security Clearance and Security. So I have to ask those questions about, did you experience any specific insecurities or even issues filling out the SF-86 or applying for a security clearance or getting your start in national security? Do you think there's anything about that onboarding process that's particularly intimidating or that you wish you'd been aware of? Oh my gosh. I mean, the security clearance process, I think, is really one of the most vulnerable processes that any of us go through, I think, in this community. And it can be you know, incredibly uncomfortable and almost invasive at times. I think what I remember most about that process for me and what I've always struggled with is the process kind of has a way of making people feel like they have to be perfect. The reality is just that perfect people don't exist, right? And and I think to even take that a step further, it's the times that I know for myself, I have felt most imperfect, that I've learned the most about myself and felt the most proud of my growth. And my learnings from that period and from that clearance process is, you know, no matter what happens in your clearance process, it doesn't change who you are or what you're capable of. You know who you are uh, and completely independent of this process and, and regardless of the outcome. I think the second thing is really that, you know, there are so many careers in this community uh, and to serve the national security mission, to serve the mission of like making the world a better place, you don't have to have a security clearance, right? And if this is a process that really just kind of makes your skin crawl or just makes you a little too uncomfortable, this is just one path, right? It, this, it does not have a monopoly on mission critical or impactful work. And there are so many meaningful paths outside of those that require these security clearance investigations. And I think we're seeing that with COVID too. I mean, we're going to write about that at clearance jobs that the number of people who have needed eligibility or access has has declined throughout COVID times, as it were. And so I think we're going to see more as they open up remote positions or different opportunities in national security. And like you said, the breadth of national security is much broader even than, you know, one segment of the positions that are out there. And I love that we talk all the time about the whole person concept, which is kind of government speak. It's the not perfect person concept is actually what it is. And you're totally right. Also to the point that like our community is really, I think, in an inflection point as we think about what we have to do inside a secure facility and what we can do from the outside. Right. I mean, I just made a transition from government to the private sector 
working for a company called Altana AI. And our mission is really to create a shared source of truth for a global supply chain and enable public-private partnerships on this issue in particular to solve hard national security problems, right? We don't need security clearances to do that. Though many of our customers, that can be a nice to have, you know, we're able to have really incredible mission impact for national security issues from outside the community and from outside the SCIF. Completely echo your sentiment there. Yeah. And so this week, I teased you at the beginning, but it's the Women in National Security Media Festival. Can I talk a little bit about the festival? Why you think weeks or events like this are important? Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this week's media festival has, I mean, it is just such an amazing week. And this is really a festival for women in national security. And it's evidence, I think, of that it's a coalition of the willing, right? And it's, I think, evidence of what is really in the realm of the possible when women come together kind of in service of their past and their present and their future. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I've been reminded often over the last few months about that 1984 quote, those who control the present control the past and those who control the past control the future. And so I think it's really, this festival is evidence of that, right? You have a a coalition of the willing, amazing women who like Kristen Wood and Ellen McCarthy and Megan Jaffer, Suzanne Wilson Heckenberg, and so many others who came together really with an idea of actually serving the history and building a future for women in the national security community. So it includes, you know, a variety of events, both in person and virtual to really just educate and inspire women across our community. We're having a special Iron Butterfly podcast episode as well. Really amazing campaign to posthumously award Virginia Hall with the Congressional Medal of Honor for her work with the OSS during and after World War II. Just a really amazing week and really just inspiring kind of a a future for women in the national security workforce. Yeah, and being with clearancejobs.com, I can never hesitate to put in a plug for events like this and their importance in career growth development and also finding a job. We still have traditional career events. Again, you can go to clearancejobs.com and look and, and pursue events, attend career events. But when you have a networking opportunity like this, it really combines kind of enjoyment, education, and networking. And when you combine those all together, I think that's super powerful. And the best way, I mean, I think even talking to young people or transitioning veterans or people looking to make a career pivot, the best way to find out if a career is right for you, it's kind of like how you talked at the beginning of the conversation. It started with a conversation with a friend. It can start with attending an event like this and getting to know the industry, getting to know people. And then again, those people are probably going to be your path into potentially a career opportunity as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that for this community, which I think makes it unique from other kind of careers or professions, is that people are super personally connected to their work. Like the missions that people are serving, it's not just transactional, right? It's not just business. These are pieces of who we are. And so I think to your point, like really getting out and getting involved in the community and meeting people who also kind of share this mission and this vision for the world, building those authentic relationships, I think is really at the core and at the foundation of building a career in national security. Across the defense industry and national security space, there's more men working in the space than women. I've had great opportunities as a woman working in, you know, in national security. I had a great experience working in the army. I've loved working at the Pentagon. I've loved the people I've worked with. I have not had some of the negative experiences that some people do talk about. But I also am at the point where I can certainly see how sometimes you walk into a room and you're one of the few women there. And that does make a difference. So it is helpful to see more women. I see them across the defense industry, especially across government leadership positions, rising into more positions of prominence. Maybe kind of talk about that. Have you seen that over the arc of your career? Do you think that helps bring more women into the field as we see women rising into leadership positions? And why is that valuable? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much value as a, you know, a young woman who's kind of entered this field within the last decade. I think, you know, when you see people who look like you, there is incredible power in that. And there's so much more to diversity, as you know, than just gender. There's so much value that people with different backgrounds and experiences bring. And so I think it's really important that you're seeing people like that. I think one thing that we talk a lot about at AWIC, um, Amazing Women of the Intelligence Community, is how there's been a lot of progress made, I think, at the entry levels, more junior levels, and at very, very senior levels. But there's this real disconnect in the mid-career range. And those positions are so important because those are leaders who are really interacting with and leading people at a very tactical level in organizations and who really kind of affect what our work environment looks like the most. And so I think to continue to advance this conversation, I think, yes, I've absolutely seen a change in, in women kind of getting into more senior leadership positions. You know, some of the greats like Tish Long and Ellen McCarthy, they would say the same thing. But I think really we still have a lot of work to do. And COVID has certainly shown us this. We've seen kind of an, an exodus of women at the mid-career level from the workforce because they're also full-time parents and full-time teachers. And I think that exodus of women, especially at that level and, and at that first line, second line supervisor level, is a huge risk for our workforce, for our agencies, for our community, because those are people who are really driving our work environments and who are making decisions that can shape our organizations. Uh, so that's a big area of focus. Many other folks in the community are talking about right now. Yeah, no, that's a great point that you bring up. And that's certainly the case when you talk about workplace culture, which is always a buzzword. Those people make a big difference and they make a big difference in who you attract into your workforce. Again, to promote diversity, we need to see diversity within those roles. And that's that's going to be super important moving forward. Well, thank you again so much, Katie, for taking the time to chat with me today. Definitely check out the events happening with the Women in National Security Media Festival and definitely check out the Iron Butterfly podcast. So thank you so much, Katie, for joining me. Thank you again so much for having me. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am your co-host, attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with Lindy Kaiser from clearancejobs.com. And this segment we are calling The Young and the Restless. And Lindy, when I hear that phrase, I think of bad daytime TV. What is your thinking on The Young and the Restless? What first comes to mind when you think of security clearances? We love the young people over at Clearance Jobs, and we get a lot of questions on our forum from the intern, student applicant, high school um, you know, demographic. I think I sent you a thread that we had gotten on the blog from just a dude, uh, clearly pining away for a job at the NSA, but potentially might have some issues there because he gave us a probably a 2,500 word essay about all of the bad things he has ever done in his whole entire life. And you're like, you wonder if like, are, am I being trolled right now when you see that? But I've actually met, you know, like versions of this kid before. Um, the NSA does a great job of recruiting in its local area. There are, you know, a decent number of young people, especially in that tech community. They have a photographic memory for every bad thing they've ever done. They have done some bad things, especially involving the internet um, sometimes. And so they have a lot of questions 
So yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm curious from your standpoint, helping, do you ever get internships that you're helping? Or I mean, are people only willing to kind of fight for their security clearance when they're career level person? Or do you kind of see those young people who have a lot of these issues or maybe people that are coming for the process later, but are regurgitating things that they did in middle school? I don't know. I'm just. Yeah. You know, it's really a mixed bag. We do actually get people who are in their late teens and early 20s who are applying for an internship in college and they're being denied a security clearance over it. It's the exception, not the norm. It does happen. And a lot of times these folks are in the D.C. area or they're in a you know major uh, in college that is uh, political science, international relations, something like that leading to a career that they hope is going to be in the national security field or the foreign relations field or something along those lines. And so this happens and they sort of freak out. They see the writing on the wall or they think they see the writing on the wall as their career ending before it even gets started. Rightfully so, they take it very seriously and they want to get this resolved. And it depends on the particular situation, whether that's possible. Obviously, I can't, you know, blanket say that, you know, everybody who has a clearance and and fights it is going to win their case. That's certainly not true. But many cases with young folks are winnable. And the reason for that is many of those cases do involve drug use. They do involve youthful indiscretions. And the government, you know, tends to view that in context. There's a lot more leeway that's provided for somebody who's 22 years old and maybe experimented with a little bit of recreational drug use in college than somebody who's 40 or 50 and decides to pick it up on a lark. And, you know, I've written about this somewhat in the past on clearance jobs with regard to ageism in the security clearance process. But, you know, it's it's true that unfortunately, if you're older and you make a mistake, there's not as much leniency that's given. So some of the ways, I guess, beyond drug use that we see young people get themselves into trouble is alcohol. That's a big one. Obviously, a lot of folks drinking a little too much in college. We've had issues there with people who have had to go to the hospital because they've drinking too much, people who have fallen and, you know, injured themselves and, you know, just really unfortunate circumstances. We've had cases involving people who, as you said, doing things on the computer that they probably shouldn't be doing. That's often, again, another young person's game with the dark web and things like that. Relationships that have gone sideways, a lack of life experience. They do things that a lot of us older folks would probably cringe at. There's a lot that younger people have to sort of learn as far as, you know, trial and error. But the government does recognize that. So I wouldn't consider yourself totally down and out if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> am I ever going to get a security clearance? Yeah. Well, and there was a, a report that had come out and it was specifically about, you know, security clearance concerns for Generation Z. And I think it highlighted a lot of the things that this forum visitor pointed out. It was drugs, porn and Bitcoin, foreign friends, just like those are emerging issues that young people, you know, sometimes come to the table with actually looking at, do we need to tweak the adjudicative criteria so it's more nuanced? I think you can apply the current adjudicative criteria and address the issues, but attracting young people to government careers is a serious issue. We have a definite graying of the government workforce, so we need young people in those positions. And I think there are just certain things that tend to come up more for the younger generation. And I love how you pointed out, like I peruse a lot of Doha cases and it always is funny to me almost that they list the person's age and like marital status frequently in those decisions. But it points to what you said as a part of considering the whole person concept, they do consider behavior. I think if you get caught the DUI or something 
and you're an older person, they actually kind of assume that, you know, maybe this is a pattern, but they just haven't caught it yet. Versus if you're a young person, you have this, there's an idea that, well, maybe, like you said, youthful indiscretion, this is not necessarily indicative of who you are as a person. And you actually have more chance to mitigate under the whole person concept than even an older person does. And they're going to say your age and your marital status and all of that stuff in their case. Oh, yeah. I mean, I anybody who hasn't had an opportunity to go online and sort of read some of the cases that come out of Doha, I would highly encourage it. It's fascinating reading. And if nothing else, it will probably make you feel a lot better about yourself and in your own circumstances, because I always tell our clients, you know, no matter how worried you are about your own background, I promise you there are a lot of people out there with worse who have gotten a clearance. So put it in context and take a deep breath. That being said, there are also situations where people are unsuccessful. And with young people in particular, one of the issues that we often confront in terms of these cases is has there been enough time that has passed since those youthful indiscretions to demonstrate you know, subsequent maturation? In other words, can the government be confident that whatever you did when you were 19, now that you're the ripe old age of 22, how, how confident are we that you, know, you learned your lesson and this isn't going to happen again? And sometimes that can be a challenge. And often in these cases, what tends to be the most helpful is demonstrating some sort of a clear break where let's say the misconduct was drug use, just for example, and that was limited to the college environment. The person's graduated college. They've moved away from where they went to college. They've severed ties with the people they were using with or buying from or whatever the case may be. And they've started working in a professional environment. Those are real black and white changes in circumstances that we can often point to to say, all right, this person is in a very different situation than they were 12 months ago, 24 months ago, whatever. And yes, it's still recent, but you have to look at what's happened. What are the intervening circumstances that have happened to really shift the way this person is viewing the world or the sort of carefree lifestyle that the person was living previously when they were in college and had no responsibilities and could sleep until noon? That's obviously not <laughs> the case now that they're working at a defense contractor and they're expected to show up to work at 9 a.m. So, you know, sometimes it really does come down to those sort of fact specific aspects of the case that we can point to to say, you know, yes, this stuff is firmly in the past. And, you know, maybe somebody who's much older and did something that was problematic uh, a couple of years ago wouldn't get that same sort of leniency or that same break. This does cut both ways. I mean, I, I do think that sometimes the cases involving young folks are challenging just because the recency issue and frankly, some of the things that they get themselves into are emerging issues that older people don't really understand or didn't have to confront. Engaging in questionable Bitcoin transactions and going, I have no idea what this is. This wasn't around when I was that age. I'm just going to err on the side of caution and you know, default to a no. Yeah, well, that's a good point. The government will err on the side of protecting itself if it is a gray area. And that's why I would say, again, reading the form correctly and accurately is a huge help if you're a young person or anybody who's filling out an SF-86 for the first time. And make sure you're only answering the questions that it asks. They don't care that you were a bully in fourth grade or that you hacked into your parents' router or, you know, or some of those things. Because I think sometimes like, well, there's a gray area of like, I did something that was, you know, illegal on a computer and, you know, I wasn't caught. 
I mean, they want you, trust me. And I have seen, I have seen young people, especially the college students applying. I think sometimes if you have the right skill set and it's a skill set that the government wants, that's a mitigating factor in some ways in and of itself, because it's saying like, hey, I do have this specific IT skill set. I once used it for nefarious purposes, and now I want to apply my skills for good. If the government needs that skill set, there's more possibility to mitigate that there sometime. Yeah, actually, it's a great point. One thing that we often encounter with young people is computer expertise. And I'll be clear, I'm not suggesting that if you're over the age of 30, you can't be uh, you know, good with computers. That's not what I'm trying to say. But oftentimes, the people who are wizards here are younger. And it's just because they've grown up with it. And, and their entire life has been computers from a very young age. And I mean, I have young kids, they already know how to type. And I didn't learn how to type until I was in middle school. So, you know, just some of these shifts, you know, involving technology and and the prevalence of it in society, I think you get a lot of younger people who are more attracted to this type of a field and and much more in demand in terms of their skill set. So we do encounter that issue where we have younger folks who have done some, uh, I guess I'll say, uh, less than legitimate things on the internet. (laughs) And that has you know, been an issue in their security clearance case, but we have had to make uh, exactly that argument and say, look, if you want people who can be effective, offensive hackers, if you want people who can ferret out the weaknesses in the government systems and protect our nation in the cyber world, you have to be able to bend a little bit on these sort of things. They don't learn these skills on the job. They come to the job oftentimes with those skills and they didn't magically wake up and (laughs) all of a sudden learn how to be a hacker. So there are sometimes challenges there in in demonstrating that they're going to limit their computer adventures to the workplace and and legitimate targeting or or whatever the government's asking them to do. It's, It's doable. My advice might be different. I always say apply. Like, I mean, unless there's a clear, I mean, unless it's clear, you definitely have something. But a lot of times, again, there's enough gray here in the policy to say, don't exclude yourself from a government career because we need people with those skill sets. You know, work with an attorney, work with someone who can help you through the process. If you're really interested and you're really passionate about a career in the government, you can mitigate things, especially if you are a young person and you want to. Because I think sometimes we see those, again, the the young and the restless, and they have other opportunities on the commercial side. And so they'll just look at the adjudicative guidelines and think, oh, there's no way I could qualify. I'm out. I don't think that's the approach. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's any harm in trying. And, you know, when in doubt, there are ways to sort of get an assessment of your odds. And one of those ways to do that is by talking with an expert who is familiar with the process and filling out, for example, a mock version of the security clearance application, the SF-86, and going through it with that person and getting a real sort of gut check on, is this a possibility or do I have to wait a couple more years? So there are options. You know, If you think that you may run into some trouble before you sort of write it off, maybe a little bit of investment up front in a real opinion on your chances of success is something that's worth doing. Oh, forget SAT prep, Sean. I'm going to be security clearance prep. Don't steal my idea, listeners. That's going to be my new side hustle at clearance jobs. We'll see if they approve it. Security clearance prep 101. We're here for you, young people. Just visit us over at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? 
Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.